This morning we're starting a series through the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is, in a historical sense, a sequel to Daniel. We just finished a Daniel series. Notice some basic information about this book. Nehemiah is the 16th book of the Old Testament. Nehemiah is a medium-sized book. Nehemiah has 13 chapters and 406 verses. We aren't sure who authored Nehemiah. God is the actual author himself, but we aren't certain who God used to record his words. Nehemiah could have written this book. Other historians feel that no, it is more probable that Ezra authored this book. Ezra was a scribe, so he could have copied it from Nehemiah's diary or journal. It's interesting that in the original Hebrew Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah are just one book and not two separate books. Until 1448 AD, Ezra and Nehemiah were together in one book and not two separate books as in our modern Bibles. So it's possible that one man wrote both books and if so, then it would have been Ezra the scribe. This book was recorded sometime around 425 B.C., just more than four centuries before Christ. To give us a basic idea where Nehemiah was in time, philosophers Socrates and Plato were both alive in Greece at the same time Nehemiah was rebuilding this wall. Same time. All that happens in Nehemiah covers a period of just 11 years. That means, in a chronological sense, there are just 11 years from the beginning of this book to the end of this book. Um, the main characters are Nehemiah, Ezra, and then some undesirable characters, Sambalat and Tobiah. We'll meet them soon. The name Nehemiah means consolation of Jehovah. Jehovah is one of God's primary names. So this name Nehemiah means consolation of God, meaning God consoles or God is able to comfort. That is the meaning of the actual name Nehemiah. Nehemiah also had an unusual profession. He was a cup bearer. Notice the phrase at the end of Nehemiah 1 and verse 11. Nehemiah said, for I was the king's cup bearer. Nehemiah's occupation, his profession, was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes was the king of the Media Persian Empire. Remember from our Daniel series, we studied how the Medes and Persians had conquered the Babylonian Empire. Artaxerxes was in charge of that particular empire. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes, and as a cupbearer, he had a unique profession. An ancient cupbearer was a combination butler and bodyguard. Let me explain how that would happen. In a sense, Nehemiah acted as a butler, and in another sense, he acted as a bodyguard. As an example, he would serve Artaxerxes the food and wine he had asked for, and before he gave him the meal, he would sample it to see if it met the standards that the king preferred as to taste and quality. If it wasn't what he understood the king would want, then Nehemiah would return that food and have the cooks make another meal. So in that sense, he served as a butler. Nehemiah also acted as a bodyguard because in tasting the food and wine, he wasn't just sampling it to see if it was acceptable 
but he had to be certain it wasn't poisoned. That was necessary because assassinations happened sometimes. So Nehemiah sampled the meal, and if the meal had been poisoned, then guess what? No more cupbearer, but long live the king. So Nehemiah had a unique position. He would also stand guard outside Artaxerxes' bedroom at night in order to protect him from being assassinated in his sleep. A cupbearer was also a personal confidant to the king. A confidant was someone the king could confide in and share private and personal information with the understanding that this cupbearer would never repeat that information to someone else. An ancient cupbearer was so close to the king, he could make some extra money on the side, putting in a good word for someone on the outside. Politics has been around a long time. So if someone wanted to be considered for a position in Artaxerxes' court, he would see Nehemiah and say, Hey, Nehemiah, can you mention me to Artaxerxes? So, aside from Mrs. Artaxerxes, no one was in a better position to influence the king than was his cupbearer. That means Nehemiah had a strategic government position. Nehemiah actually held three basic positions in this book. One, in the first part of this book, as we just said, he was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. Two, in the middle part of this book, he was the rebuilder of the wall around Jerusalem. Remember, the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem. So he headed up a gigantic construction crew uh, marching into Jerusalem to rebuild the wall that was in ruins and shambles. Three, in the last part of the book, he was the governor of Jerusalem. That means altogether Nehemiah was a cupbearer, and then he was builder of the Jerusalem wall, and then he acted in a political function because he also became a governor. So Nehemiah understood the meaning of career change. Nehemiah is a book that comments on numerous interesting and practical subjects. And one of those subjects is leadership. Leadership. And Nehemiah was an effective leader. Prolific author John Maxwell. John Maxwell is, uh, among evangelicals, sort of a leadership guru. Uh, he's amazing, uh, his material on leadership. He defines leadership as influence. Influence. Leadership is influence because essentially someone that leads is influencing someone else to follow him. That's illustrated in the Chinese proverb. The proverb reads, He who believes he leads and no one follows him is just taking a walk because that's leadership convinces someone to follow. If someone is a construction foreman or a store manager or CEO of a corporation or if someone is a private first class, or an apprentice, or someone in, is non-management and more rank and file, that's irrelevant. None of that matters. Because if someone has some influence over someone else, he then is in some sense leading him. Because at its core, leadership is influence. Let me mention a more elongated definition. Leadership is the enablement to give direction to someone else in order to help them achieve their desired goals. Former President uh, Harry S. Truman, gentleman in our first service, uh, grew up. He was raised in Independence. Uh, he's some older than me. And he was, uh, he was friends with the president. He would go to his house often. And uh, 
uh, he knew Harry and Bess, which I think is fascinating. But Harry Truman described a leader as someone who can convince someone else to do what he doesn't want to do and make him enjoy doing it. That would be leadership. We're commemorating communion this morning, and uh, that is significant. And because of that, this message is just an introduction, as there's not enough time to start into the actual text until next Sunday morning. So um, uh, this is sort of not a sermon. Uh, It's just an introduction. Sociologists have long debated the question, are leaders born or made? Are leaders born or made? Not unlike the proverbial question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Is someone a leader because of nature or nurture? The recent scientific studies seem to suggest that leadership is 30% genetic and 70% learned. 30% genetic and 70% learned. So some would argue that means leaders are most often made and not born. I'm not so sure. Was Nehemiah a born leader or a made leader? We will have to wait to find out. There are three particular tensions all leaders should be aware of. Nehemiah faced all three tensions. And this book is going to touch on each of them. But (coughs) independent from this book, let me mention them as a part of this introduction. Tension one is trusting people. There is tension in trusting people. The percentage of us that believe most people can be trusted is now less than 35%. And I'm not part of that 35%. I contend most people now cannot be trusted. Those that lead at some point feel a people paranoia, meaning a tension, question, trusting someone. Um, This is me, this is personal. Uh, This reflects my bias, so feel free to disagree. I don't trust China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. I don't trust the U.S. Congress. I don't trust this present administration. I don't trust most Democrats. And I don't trust more and more Republicans. Are you aware the most recent Republican administration added another $7 trillion to our debt? People, that's called theft. We're stealing from our children, our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren. That is immoral and that is unacceptable. Whoever is in charge. I don't trust the media at all. I don't trust Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Liar, liar, pants on fire. I don't trust teachers' unions. I don't trust school boards. I don't trust the CDC and the FDA. I don't trust Dr. Fauci, who was just caught in another massive cover-up and lie. This past week, a top National Institute of Health authority admitted, he admitted, U.S. tax dollars did help fund, our tax dollars did help fund gain-of-function research on bad coronaviruses at the Wuhan lab in China, something Dr. Fauci has adamantly denied and denied repeatedly. He lied to Congress, he lied to the press, he lied to the media, and he has lied to us, the public. I don't trust the FBI. I don't trust the Attorney General and the DOJ. And I don't trust the IRS. 
Someone said that 2022 income tax forms are scheduled to be printed on Kleenex. Kleenex, because our taxes are so unreasonable, we will have to pay through the nose. That's probably (laughs) going to happen. Um, I am not just some cynical old man. I'm old, but I'm not cynical. Consider the evidence. The evidence is there. The evidence argues that in our increasing movement toward the left, we have created a societal climate of mistrust. And that's a serious problem. Trust is becoming extinct. Trust is soon becoming a word found only in dictionaries. To someone that leads, there is a temptation to mistrust people. I have argued, I can't find someone I trust to do this, so I guess I have to do it myself. My mother had that attitude. I was the oldest of five children. All the experiment happened on me. Uh, I, uh, as a teenager, I questioned why my brothers weren't assigned to do some of the household jobs and chores I was forced to do. It didn't seem fair to me. And she responded. This is how she said. She said, I can't trust them to do it right, so you get to do it. (laughs) Meaning, essentially, she punished me for doing a good job. But but I'm I'm not bitter about it. (laughs) Much. Anyway. Trusting people is sometimes a serious tension for me. Can this person be trusted? Can this person be responsible? Can this person be counted on? Can this person commit themselves to a 100% effort? Or is this person content doing just enough? That is a serious tension. To trust or not to trust, that is the question. Someone that leads has to be able to delegate responsibilities. And if his mistrust in people prevents him from assigning them a job, then he will have left more to do than he's able to do himself. The reason is because there are no supermen and superwomen. All people have human limitations. And if someone isn't able to delegate, then his potential to lead is going to be short-circuited because no one can do it all. And this is a tension for me. I struggle delegating because I struggle trusting. Some people we assign something to do are going to fumble the ball. Some are going to mess up. Some are going to disappoint us. But unless, unless someone's track record is so irresponsible, it would be a high percentage risk to use them. Unless that's the case, then we need to let someone at least have a chance to succeed. We have to learn to trust people. We have to give them a chance. David commented on trusting people. Notice Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Verse 9, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princesses. Now these are comparative statements. David's comments here came from personal experience because people had given him a reason not to trust them. Psalm 41 verse 9, notice, Even, this is David, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted. This is a friend, he said, in whom he trusted. Who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. This phrase, who ate 
my bread meant eating a meal together, sitting down and sharing a meal together. That would have been a sign of peace and friendship. So this verse is describing a grievous betrayal on the part of a supposed friend. David had numerous friends that turned on him. Some historians believe this verse was a reference to a particular friend named Ahithophel. Ahithophel was considered the prime minister and David's close friend. The problem was Ahithophel turned on David and joined David's third son named Absalom. Absalom had organized a coup against his own father and tried to steal his throne. Imagine that. Ahithophel acted as a counselor to Absalom during that rebellion. Ahithophel ultimately committed suicide through hanging himself, and Absalom died a strange, strange death in battle. Even though his own son Absalom and his close friend Ahithophel had betrayed him, notice David didn't become bitter. David didn't devalue all people and decide that no one can be trusted. He didn't swear off people. David did trust people after that, but he understood that humans can sometimes turn on us, but God never does. These verses we just read from Psalm 118 do not teach, do not teach we are not to trust man. In order to function in a societal sense, we must be able to find persons we can trust. It is not wrong to trust man. But these statements from Psalm 118 read that it's better, better to trust God than man. Man can let us down and often does. God never does. A second tension is being authoritative. Authoritative. Listen carefully. This is being authoritative, not being authoritarian. Not being authoritarian. This nation is moving toward authoritarianism. Authoritarian governments are one-party dominated governments that insist on the enforcement of strict obedience to that authoritarian regime at the expense of people's personal freedom. One more time. Authoritarian governments are one-party dominated governments and insist on the enforcement of strict obedience to that authoritarian regime at the expense of people's personal freedoms. That is where we are at this exact moment in these United States. Just one example of that is the COVID vaccine mandate. The president told us would never exist. He said receiving the vaccine would be optional. He encouraged it, but it wouldn't be forced onto us. Remember throughout 2020, during the initial stages of the pandemic, doctors, nurses, paramedics, even firefighters and police were celebrated across this nation as courageous heroes. And that, and that should have been. That was deserving on their part. Now, in 2021, tens of thousands, 
Altogether, hundreds of thousands of those same people are being terminated, losing jobs, and are labeled as insurrectionists, rebels, conspiracy theorists, extremists, and according to the Department of Homeland Security, potential domestic terrorists. That, people, is an example of authoritarian government. I have said this from the beginning. Receiving the vaccine or rejecting the vaccine should be a choice. And we shouldn't stand in judgment over someone else because his choice isn't the same as our choice. I believe in personal freedom. If you and some of you have, if you have received the vaccine, good for you. God bless you. If you haven't received the vaccine and don't intend to receive the vaccine, good for you. God bless you. It doesn't matter. In the context of Christianity, that's called Christian liberty. You should have the freedom to decide. Listen to your conscience. Listen to what God is communicating to you through your conscience. And if you choose to receive the vaccine, great. If you choose not to, great. The vaccine should be a choice. But it's not becoming a choice. The problem is more and more government edicts are stealing our choices. The presidential mandate, forcing people to receive a vaccine in violation of their conscience, and in some cases, over a religious objection, is government overreach. And it is intrusive, inappropriate, offensive, and unconstitutional. And it needs to stop. The difference in being authoritative, don't confuse these words, the difference in between being authoritative versus being authoritarian is seen in parenting technique. God has designed parents to be domestic leaders. And some parents don't understand that. Some parents are more interested in being a child's friend than being that child's parent. And that's a big mistake. Authoritative parenting and authoritarian parenting are similar in the sense that both authoritative and authoritarian parents are strict and have high expectations of their children. But there's a significant difference between them. Authoritative parents are strict and warm. Authoritarian parents are strict and cold. Don't miss that. Authoritative parents are strict, yes, and warm. Authoritarian parents are strict, but cold. Authoritative parents explain house rules to their children. Those parents, though, are open as a child progresses in age and adolescence and in maturity. Those parents are open to mutual discussion and, are actually, and will actually modify the rules if it is appropriate. Children are challenged to think about the reasons those parents have imposed those rules because they want their children to be critical thinkers. Because children with authoritative parents are free to share their personal opinions and participate in decision-making, those children have higher self-esteem. Authoritarian parents only permit one-way communication. These parents use, and I've heard this, because I said so. Well, I mean, if, for a small child, I get that. But as, as, as children age and mature, that's inadequate. Um, 
that I said so is the reason for rules. And children are expected to be obedient and not ask questions. Children are to be seen and not heard. Children whose parents are authoritarians are often insecure and apprehensive. People need someone authoritative to follow. But here's the problem. And this is where the tension comes in. Sometimes those that lead start to feel some guilt about being authoritative. This is a common domestic problem. It has happened in our home. Children can be extremely manipulative. Our three sons are all adults, ages 44, 41, and almost 37. But as adolescents, each of them did sometimes, sometimes each of them did impose fraudulent guilt, unnecessary guilt, onto their mother. Notice, not onto me, they knew better, onto their mother. She's the soft touch. None of them would agree to doing that. I mean, all of them would categorically deny ever doing that. But older parents and grandparents understand that children are historical revisionists. And the reason we understand that is because we are historical revisionists ourselves. As adults, we often tell horrific stories about how difficult we had it as children. I mean, you know, we had to walk to and from school, two miles, uphill, both directions. It was terrible. So Hopi would require our sons to do something that none of them wanted to do, and each of them would argue and complain about how it just wasn't fair, how that none of their friends were made to do this, it just wasn't fair. And she would confess to me in private, they make me feel so guilty because I asked them to do something. Well, <laughs> blow it off. Forget the guilt trip and just continue asking. And uh, if it doesn't work, come see me. That will work. <laughs> Parents don't need to feel guilty about being a parent. Because parents are God's ordained authority in the home. As parents, we didn't one time ever feel guilty requiring our sons to attend church on Sunday mornings. Just as we didn't feel guilty not one time requiring our sons attend school on Monday mornings. Both were non-negotiable to us. There was no option. As parents, we shouldn't feel guilty about being authoritative unless we're demanding something from our child that is unreasonable. Jesus was himself authoritative, not authoritarian, authoritative. And that was apparent in his preaching. Matthews chapters 5, 6, and 7 contain the most famous sermon and longest sermon Jesus ever preached called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preached that sermon from a mountainside near the Sea of Galilee. These verses describe the people's reaction to hearing that sermon. Matthew 7, verse 28. And so it was, when Jesus had ended these sayings, meaning when Jesus had completed his sermon, that the people were astonished at his teaching. The people were astonished at his teaching. The word astonished or amazed, as some Bible translates, some Bibles translate that word, is a Greek word that meant to be struck outside of oneself, to be astounded, to be beside oneself. 
Jesus' sermon caused this crowd to be literally dumbfounded. These people that heard this sermon had never heard such comprehensive and insightful words of wisdom, insight, and profundity. Those people had never heard such straightforward denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees and such a black and white presentation of the means of salvation. But the thing, the one thing that astounded the crowd the most is mentioned in verse 29. Notice, for he, Jesus, taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. These people were impressed because Jesus taught as having authority. Authoritative preaching is biblical preaching. The scribes often quoted rabbinical tradition to support their teaching. Jesus, though, spoke God's words to give credence and empowerment to his message. There was no comparison between the scribes' teaching and Jesus' teaching, and the people could see that. In his time on this earth, Jesus came across as an authoritative figure, not authoritarian, not as a rigid, legalistic, self-promoting, self-righteous, authoritarian, as were the scribes and Pharisees. He was authoritative, not authoritarian. And the multitudes that came to hear Jesus teach came in part because he was authoritative in his teaching. That is so unusual in the modern church. More and more pastors are ambiguous and inexact and ambivalent, Modern preachers tend to preach using content that could be considered as inoffensive as possible. Joel Osteen pastors the largest church in one location in North America. Uh, There are churches that together, counting all of the multiple campuses, sometimes multiple campuses in different states that altogether are larger, but uh, the largest church that meets in one location in Houston um, is Lakewood Church, averaging some 45,000 plus on weekends. Joel is the poster child representing consumer-driven preaching. He wants to tickle people's ears. He wants to give them what they want to hear. I remember seeing Joel being interviewed, and the question presented to him was, is being gay or being lesbian, a sin? Is homosexuality a sin? Joel squirmed in his seat, and in his slowness to respond, said, well, well, I don't think it's best. He doesn't think it's best. In his carefulness not to offend his audience, Joel offended God, because he misrepresented the moral code. Joel knows he's not a stupid man. He knows the biblical answer to that question. But in his cowardice, he selected a softer, more audience-friendlier response. That people is not teaching with authority. Someone said the problem with modern preachers is that no one wants to kill them. (laughs) Being martyred was the most common death most ancient preachers experienced. Those ancient preachers preached with authority, and that was offensive to some people. If the man or woman that leads 
is authoritative in the appropriate sense of that word, then he or she shouldn't feel guilty about that. Tension three is being afraid. Being afraid. There are two illegitimate forms of being afraid. One is FOP, F-O-P, meaning fear of people. Second is FOF, fear of failure. FOP and FOF, fear of people and fear of failure. The second form of fear is the fear leaders face the most. If I'm afraid, it's probably because I'm afraid to fail. It is normal to not want to fail. Listen to two specific arguments against being afraid to fail. One, fear of failure, FOF, is unreasonable. It is an unreasonable fear. One technique to use to relieve this particular tension is to recognize that if we intend to do something that has meaning and significance, then there's a 100% chance of a potential of failure. Learning to ride a bicycle includes falling off. Learning to ice skate includes falling down. Learning to drive a car as a teenager includes sudden stops, jerks, and sometimes near collisions. No one that wants to succeed is immune to failure. This persistent fear of failure, though, prevents some people from ever attempting to do something that would include risk. So the only people that don't fail are those persons that don't attempt to do something that has less than a 100% chance of success. A corporate consultant from Sweden interviewed people from different countries and asked them about their biggest fear. What were these people most afraid of? One out of five said, biggest fear, one out of five said it was to die without having had purpose, meaning, or significance. Listen to some of them. Anthony from New York, my biggest fear is never taking a risk in an effort to find my true calling. Rebecca from Germany, my greatest fear is to go through life living small but not realizing it until it's too late. Danielle from California, my greatest fear would be missing out on my purpose here on earth. I know I have a purpose that I am not yet serving. Lucinia from Portugal, my biggest fear is to go through life without leaving a positive mark. Ralph from North Brunswick, my greatest fear is regretting all that I didn't do as I lay in a hospital bed as an elderly man. Probably most of us have read this quotation from former President Theodore Roosevelt. It bears repeating. Far better, far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they live in the great twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. Understand, the only people that don't fail are those that refuse to assume a risk and attempt to do something that matters. One classic biblical example. 
Most of us remember Simon Peter's attempt to walk on water from Matthew 14, verses 22 through 32. It was in the middle of the night and during a severe storm and the disciples were on a boat in the middle of a lake. And Jesus started walking on the water in the darkness in that severe storm. He started walking on the water and approached this boat full of his disciples. And at first they had no idea who this was and once they had identified him as Jesus, Simon Peter asked permission from Jesus to come meet him on the water. Peter received permission and then he tried to walk on the water to meet Jesus. Now according to verse 30 from that text, Peter was actually walking on top of the water. We don't know how many steps he took but the text reads that he did walk on the water until he noticed the waves and especially the wind and then the fear of failure grabbed him and he started to sink. So he screamed out, Lord save me. So Jesus reached down into the water, pulled him up, saved him from drowning. But people now are critical of Simon Peter. You know, he was just impulsive. He ought known better he couldn't do that. He failed. He started to sink. He started to drown. He didn't continue walking. He didn't finish his assignment. So he failed. No, I disagree. I contend Simon Peter didn't fail. He didn't fail because he tried. He tried to walk on water. The rest of those disciples remained frozen, totally paralyzed with fear inside the boat. Those disciples were the real failures because those men didn't even attempt to get out of the boat. Again, people, the person who succeeds is not the one who holds back fearing failure, nor the one who never fails, but rather is the one who moves on in spite of failure. I remember attending a Zig Ziglar seminar once. Not sure why I was there. I had been invited. Zig was a motivational speaker. He died in 2012. Um, I'm not really into motivational seminars, but uh, I went. He's one of the most optimistic people on the planet ever. He was amazing. He was also a committed Christian and he served as an adult Sunday school teacher at First Baptist Church, Dallas. That seminar was divided into two sessions. A Zig had the afternoon session, an associate of his had the morning session. His name was Brian Tracy, probably an unfamiliar name. Brian has an impressive resume, a bachelor's degree in communication and a master's in business administration. He is the founder and CEO of Brian Tracy International, a human resource corporation. He is also president of three additional companies. He has been a high-level consultant for multi-billion dollar corporations. He has authored 80 books translated into dozens of languages. He has spoken in more than 80 countries on five different continents and he speaks four different languages himself. He is also a member of the conservative think tank, the Heritage Foundation. I think that's a good thing. I am not privy to his spiritual status. I do not know if he is a converted man. I do not know. But from a secular perspective, he is an unusual success. The reason I mention him is to demonstrate 
that we shouldn't be afraid of failure because failure isn't final. Get that. Failure isn't final. In Brian Tracy's senior year of high school, he failed six out of his seven classes. But he ultimately succeeded. Someone said failure for him was just a temporary test in order to prepare him for a more permanent triumph. The best leaders in the home, outside the home, in corporate, in a nonprofit, in the church, it doesn't matter. The best leaders are not afraid to fail. Second, fear of failure is unbiblical. Unbiblical. We all agree that 2020 was the most difficult time. The COVID pandemic caused severe sickness. Millions have contracted the disease. Massive numbers of fatalities in the U.S. alone. 736,000 people have died from COVID and that number is increasing. That is if we believe that number. There have been lockdowns, forced social isolation, school closures, church closures, joblessness, financial struggles, a dramatic surge in suicides, unprecedented riots, political craziness and radical government overreach. 2020 was a difficult time. It's interesting though that in 2020, a record number of people turned to scriptures that address those problems, the problems all of us faced. There was a particular Bible app called YouVersion, Y-O-U, Version. I use that particular Bible app. I recommend that app, YouVersion. Get this, in 2020, people had downloaded that app and read on that app a total of 43.6 billion, billion Bible chapters in 2020. And those people shared a half billion verses from that app. The highest numbers on record. Searches on that app increased 80% in 2020. And in 2020, the number one verse searched on that version Bible app was this one. Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear not. Fear not, meaning do not be afraid. For I, God, am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let's read that verse together. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do you believe that? In a Facebook post, Emily Clark wrote that she and her husband encountered one of the most severe storms ever driving through North Queensland, Australia. The rainwater was filling up the sides of the highways, the highway, inches deep all over the road. She said, we noticed a semi-trailer truck moving over to the left ahead of us. I asked my husband, do you think that truck driver... Is, is pushing the excess water off the road for us? 
He said, I, I think that's what's happening. It was so bad, she said, I could only see his brake lights at one point. It was unsafe to stop, so I tucked in close behind this truck and his trailer, and he guided me through that rainstorm. Braking frequently, putting his indicator on the side if there was an upcoming hazard. She had a sick feeling that if she were to stop on the road to let her husband drive, then they would be in even more danger. So she followed the truck as close as she could until the rainstorm had subsided, the storm had lessened, and this driver pulled off at a pub. She said on the post, my husband immediately got out of the car, and he ran to meet this driver as he got out of his truck, and he went to meet him to thank him. He was from Melbourne, she said, and he was just so humble. We thanked him and thanked him from the bottom of our hearts for helping keep us safe. He told us, because I was higher up in my cab, I knew I could see more than you could see. And if you were my family, I would only hope that another truck driver would do the same for you. Because God is higher up, people, he can see more than we can see. He sees all that is ahead of us. And if we would just follow him through the storm as close as possible and trust him, then this fear of failure would never, ever be a problem. Let's bow our heads. Father, we're going to sit at your table in just a moment. We're going to commemorate the death of your son, Jesus. We're grateful that because of him, we don't have to fear failure. We don't have to fear people either. We don't have to be afraid. I hope and pray that some of this has made some sense and made a difference in each of us. But now we come to a very sacred part of our service where we share in communion together. And I just pray, God, that you will be pleased with our worship as we do. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.